Welcome everyone, lesson number three of Master Plan for Life. We're going to be on page 23, but I was just informed a few minutes ago that someone who watched this class last week on live stream said that at the very last point, the very last point it cut out. Did you guys, did you guys say that? Well, somebody else told me that. Yeah, okay. So it was the very, the very end of lesson two on page 19, the very last point was that whatever God does is always right. And it says that God's sovereignty means that all that he does is right. His actions are not right because they conform to a standard of right and wrong. What standard of right and wrong is there outside of God? Of course, there is none. He is the standard of right and wrong. And so I was just saying at the end when it cut out that, therefore, we should not find ourselves saying it's not fair. Because God is the one who defines what is right, what is wrong. And of course, he's incapable of doing anything anything wrong. The only reason that we have ideas of what's right and wrong is because we are creatures made in the image of God. And so that's a reflection of God that we even care about right, right and wrong. So we should not find ourselves in our own lives or in our ministries saying that it's, it's not fair. And all of this, everything that we saw in that second lesson, means that our ministries and lives must place priority on God and who He is and what His, His purpose is. Life was made to be God-centered. All right, that's what I said. That's all you missed, okay, at the end. So do we have any idea why it got cut off, cut off at the end? The microphone died. Okay, right at the very end. Wow, okay. Well, it made it through uh, just about all of it. Very good. Well, this is lesson uh, number three in Master Plan for Life. In preparation for each of our meetings, there is homework, but we, I always kind of put that in quotes when I say homework because we don't... We don't check it, but it's just for your benefit so that you have something to be in the Word with every, every day prior to our meetings together. And it also prepares you for the coming lessons. So today's lesson is based on the homework that you would have had on pages 21 and 22. And there was an email, and there's going to be an email every week that goes out to everyone enrolled in this class that gives you our answers to that homework on Tuesday so that you can check what you did throughout the week if you want to compare, compare those. Now, Master Plan for Life has two major sections to it. It's answering two questions. Who am I and why am I here? We are in part one, and it has five sections that are all designed to answer that one question, who am I? The five sections are the doctrine of God, doctrine of the Bible, doctrine of humanity and sin, doctrine of Christ, doctrine of salvation, those five. So by the time we get to the end of those five, which comprise a total of 16 lessons, then we can have a full answer to that question, who, who am I? And we are in the first of those, of course. We're in the doctrine of God, and we've covered two lessons already. Lesson one just covered three introductory points about God, that God exists, that God is a person, and that God is a triunity. And then lesson two, last week, we saw that God's character qualities can be divided into two categories, his communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. And we saw that those in the communicable category are those that God can communicate or share with humanity, and thus the name then communicable. But those that are incommunicable belong to God alone. If he did not have them, he would not be God. If we had them, we would be. Those communicable attributes, the ones that he can share, are sometimes called the character qualities or attributes of God's goodness and the incommunicable 
are those of his greatness. And so that's why lesson two last week was called the greatness of God, because it was about attributes in that particular category, those things that belong to God alone. Today, the lesson, lesson three, is the greatness of God and the Christian life. We're going to see what that means in a practical way, that God has these character qualities that belong to, to Him alone. But then next week, lesson four, the title is The Goodness of God. And that's that second category, the character qualities of God that we can emulate, that He can share with us. In last week's lesson on the greatness of God, those incommunicable attributes, we saw a number of examples of those, that He is self-existent, that God is eternal, no beginning, no end, that He's omnipresent, that He can be everywhere, is everywhere uh, uh, at the same time, and a number of others. But we focused on three in particular, God's omniscience, that He knows everything, that He is omnipotent, that He has all power, power He has all power, and that He is sovereign. He has the right to do as He pleases with His creation. And so tonight, as I say, we're going to look at the practical significance of the greatness of God, those, those attributes. Top of page 23, then. And if you have any questions as we go, those of you that are here live, of course, just uh, you can just blurt it out to get my attention. Those of you that are watching on live stream, I'm told if you go to the Church Center app that you're able to send a group message, and we'll, uh, I, I have a techie here in the room that will see that and will call my attention to it, okay? So if you send that, we'll do our best to see it and answer it, all right? Top of page 23, lesson two, describe the attributes or character qualities of God's greatness. We learned that he's great because he is infinite or he's without external limitations. Now that word there, external, is very important because God does have internal limitations. So it's not fair to say that nothing limits God. Actually, God is limited by who he is. And that's a good thing for us, because based upon his character, there are certain things that he cannot do. Not just things he will not do or hasn't done, but things that he actually is constitutionally incapable of doing. Things like lying. God could not lie. So it's not just that he doesn't lie, he, he couldn't lie because of his, his nature. So he does have internal limitations, but he has nothing or no one outside of him that constrains what he's able to do. So when we talk about God then having unlimited, uh, unlimited abilities, we're talking about unlimited in terms of anything limiting him from outside. Mankind, however, we say, is completely limited. So we say completely limited. So let's think about how we're, we're limited. You know, we're, God we saw last week is eternal. What that means is he's not limited by time. Are we limited by time? Right? So we're limited by time. We're not, we're not eternal. Now, we will live eternally in the future, but we came into being. But God is eternal in that he had no beginning and no end, as we saw last week. God's also uh, not limited by space. We're limited by space. We can only be at one place at one time. We're limited in knowledge. We have to learn. God has never learned. I said last week, has it ever occurred to you that it's never occurred to God? God has never learned anything. He knows everything intuitively, all in a flash of intuition. We have to learn, and not only do we have to learn, we can only learn so much, and we can only retain so much of what it is we learn. But God has all knowledge, simultaneously. We're limited in power. Contrary to what we say you know, in, in empowerment seminars, 
reading self-help gurus. You know, you can do anything you put your mind to. Nah. <laughs> okay? I mean, the truth is we're limited, right? I, got, I have no problem with, in fact, I encourage trying to be an encourager, you know, to people. And trying to, for yourself and for others, to try to be all that you can be, but all the while understanding who we are and we are finite creatures, so we cannot do whatever it is we set our minds to. You can't be whatever you want to be because we don't, have full, we don't have full ability. And we're also limited in authority. We do not have the right to do as we please, and we certainly don't have the right to command others to do as we please, but God does. So that first paragraph, when we say mankind is completely limited, that's what we mean by that. Therefore, while God is infinite, mankind is finite. That's what we mean, that God is infinite. He has no external limitations. Man is finite. We have plenty of them. And theologians call this fundamental difference between God and mankind, the creator-creature distinction. Now, when you talk about the creator-creature distinction, that might sound obvious. You know, it should. Okay, I'm not the creator. Okay. Tell me something I didn't know, right? It should be obvious that there's a creator and we are the creatures and that they're not the same. Well, yeah, that was obvious before the entrance of sin <laughs> into the world. But then after the entrance of sin into the world, you know, it's not as obvious, especially in, at least to us, sinful people, especially in the way we think and the way we talk, the way we act. We make God in our own image. And you see it in things like, we are, we are going to have a lesson in part two devoted to the issue of worship. And I'll talk a lot about what God says about what He likes in worship. But for now, just consider this. People evaluate, they evaluate worship, congregational worship, based upon whether we enjoy it or whether we like it. But who's, who's it really for? And this is just, these are subtle ways in which we kind of dethrone God. And the most important criteria is what do I like? Not what does God like? I'm not suggesting you design a worship service that you don't like, that you do that on purpose. But that shouldn't be the first thing that we, that we ask ourselves. The question really is, what is God like? And God wrote a book to tell us the kinds of things He likes. Or... We ask things when we're thinking about, should I do something, should I not do something? We ask the question, well, what's wrong with it? I, I've heard that question plenty of times because I used to do youth work. <laughs> and teens are, are famous for, infamous for the what's wrong with it thing. But we, we do that. When the question really should be not what's wrong with it, but what's right with it. Meaning, I'm consulting God about what's right about it. Does it conform to his character? And the fact that we don't think that way means that we've got this creator-creature thing mixed up. To say something like, you know, I don't see anything wrong with it. Is that, is that supposed to be a sufficient basis for deciding what it is you're going to do? I don't see anything wrong with it? Again, is that the question that you or I don't see anything wrong with it? Who should we be consulting? Who should we be caring about? We consult God for whether what we're contemplating to do is right. So how or what could put any kind of limits on God? Now, we do, we do it because our sinful nature causes us to, 
to do that. But when you step back and you think about it, there's really no one and no thing that can place limits on God. And that's why Romans 11, Romans 11, verses 33 to 36, has this doxology, this praise to God. At the end of a section in Romans, it goes from chapter 9 all the way to the end of chapter 11, 9, 10, and 11. And when Paul, who wrote it, gets to the end of it, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things... To Him be the glory forever. Amen. If we can keep that in mind, then we can keep this creator-creature distinction as it's supposed to be. So second paragraph, top of page 23. The relationship between the creator and mankind is shaped by God's character rather than by mankind's desire. So the way God is and where we are in relation to God is shaped by Him, not by what we might think we want it to be. That's what we're saying there. Now, we have to say this because although humanity was originally fine with God being God, and then with all that flows from that, now, as I said, with the entrance of sin, and every, all of us come into the world now with a sin nature, we'll see that especially when we get to the section on humanity and sin, now we're not so sure. We're not so sure that God should make the rules. We're not so sure about God's right to punish wrong. We're not so sure about whether we are or should be dependent on God. So to test yourself on this, we should never really start our thinking, our thoughts about God with, you know, I like to think of God as fill in the blank. I like to think of God as, I mean, not to be too flippant, but who cares what we would like to think of God as? Because God is. And God has told us who He is. So it's not what I want my conception of God to be. Years ago when I was working on my com computer job, at one of the places I worked, they had like a digital bulletin board People could just put whatever, and they had discussions out there. This was before the days of Facebook. This was kind of, this was high tech to be able to have these, you know, back and forths on this digital bulletin board. And when one guy put out there, quote, I wrote it down, you have to choose a religion that conforms to your beliefs and how you feel. And that's what, you know, a lot of people like. I have to choose something that fits me. You know, you, you do you when it comes to religion even, when it comes to God even. I had a Christian co-worker who replied out on that digital bulletin board. He said this, If I set out to find a God that conforms to my beliefs, I'd find myself. And then he said, God is not there to conform to what we want Him to be. He is eternal and unchanging. Pretty good. But see, that's the kind of thing in our culture, and we can get imbued with that as well if we're not, if we're not careful. So, in theology, in the, in the study of God, creativity is not a virtue. Making stuff up about God is not a virtue. The only way you know God is God revealing God. And so God speaks for Himself. We don't speak for Him. And when we speak for Him, 
We tend to make Him what we want Him to be. That's why we say in that second paragraph, the relationship between the Creator and mankind is shaped by God's character rather than mankind's desire. This lesson describes that relationship from the perspective of God's, these three character qualities that we focused on last week, omnipotence, omniscience, and sovereignty. Now, for each of these, as we look at each of these three points, God's omnipotence, that is His power, His omniscience, that is His knowledge, God's sovereignty, that is His authority, as we look at each of these, we're going to see how it applies to humanity in general, not just Christians, and then we'll see how it applies to Christians specifically. So the power of God, or that's God's omnipotence, and the Christian life, and A there you see, we're going to see how it applies to humanity in general, mankind's relationship to the omnipotent God. The omnipotence of God renders mankind totally dependent upon Him. The fact that He has all power means that we are totally, all humanity is totally dependent on Him. The Creator is the ultimate source of everything needed by believer and unbeliever alike. So Acts chapter 17, if you care to jot it down, Acts 17 and verse 25, Acts 17, 25 says this, He Himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Have you ever considered, friends, that the person who curses God, the person who says, I don't believe in God, the person who uses God's oxygen to breathe <laughs> and then to do their own thing, in every one of those, in everything that person does, in everything everyone does, they're actually dependent on God to be able to do it. They're dependent on God to be able to defy God. Because He gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now we say in that line, He's the ultimate source. That is, that God's provision of everything needed may not be given to us directly by Him, he may use means, secondary means, in order to provide it. But ultimately, behind everything that we receive, it's from God, if in fact He's the Creator as He is. He has structured the specific details of our lives so that we must rely on Him for all things. And this is true whether a person acknowledges it or not. He has structured the specific details of our lives so that we must rely on Him. Now, why would God do that? Why would God structure everything so that you have to rely on Him? Because God, what, what's, what's God about? God's about God's glory. God is about God's praise. And so God will not allow anyone or anything to be independent of, of Him so that He receives the praise for everything that occurs. So you see that in a number of ways. We've got three of them listed here. That mankind is dependent on God for preservation of the physical universe. Here's Hebrews 1.3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in, in heaven. So here's what the expositor's Bible commentary says about, about that verse. When it says sustaining... It means carrying along. The thought is that of carrying the universe along, of bearing it toward a, a goal. When it says all things, it's talking about the totality, the universe considered as a whole. Nothing's excluded from the scope of God's sustaining activity. And then it says that He sustains by His powerful Word. And the word that's translated word is a word that means command or order. 
And so God's word is, is active and it's powerful. You guys remember that the universe was brought into existence by the word of God? God said and it was. So the word is not empty. God's word, when God speaks something, it has force. It does things. And the word powerful in that verse is the Greek word dunamis. We get our word dynamite from it. So mankind is dependent on God for preservation of the physical universe. Second, dependent on God for protection from harm. Job 34, if it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. So God keeps that from happening. Um, so, and he has to do that because in a fallen world, we are prone to harm. We are prone to accident. So you have in the Psalms, for example, uh, these pilgrim psalms. You know, the Psalms are 150 of them, and you've got sections of them. And there's a section of them that, depending on if you have a King James or if you have another translation, they have titles above them. You know, you guys have seen them where they say a Psalm of David and that kind of thing. Well, there's a section that just after 100, you get into the 120s, you've got this section, there are Psalms of, the King James says, of degrees at the top, or others will say a song of ascents, like you're ascending. So degrees ascending. Now, now, what's that about? Well, these were, these were pilgrim psalms. These are, they were songs that were sung by travelers who were going to the holy city of Jerusalem. And the reason it says degrees or ascents is because Jerusalem is, is raised. So whenever you're going to Jerusalem, you're, going, you're ascending. You're going up. And so you have Psalm 121, for example. It's one of these. And it asks the Lord in the song as they are traveling to not let your foot slip, to keep you from harm as you're, as you're going on your traveling. And at the very beginning of that Psalm, Psalm 121, it says, I lift my eyes to the hills from where my help comes. So here's the picture is, you know, these, these pilgrims that are going to the holy city, and now they're around, and they see it in the distance, and I lift my eyes to the holy city, and that's where my help comes from. So God, you know, keeps us from harm. Now, we're in a fallen world, so sometimes, you, you know, you get hurt, bad stuff happens. That'll all be done in the future, in the kingdom. Think about that. You'll be in the kingdom, and you can't get hurt. So now you can get hurt. But God is still keeping you from getting hurt as much as you could. And here's, here's one of the things about it is, is you don't know, and I don't know, you know, the old saying is you don't know what you don't know. You don't know how many times God kept you from getting harmed. You don't know how many times a car accident occurred and a whole combination of events occurred such that if you had left your house just literally seconds before you would have been involved in it. Or if you had just taken a different, you know, a right instead of a left. So we don't know how many times, but you should, as you thank God in your prayers, we should just thank God for sustaining us all the time. Because He's doing it in ways we don't even, don't even see. So don't just thank Him when a good thing happens. Thank Him when bad things don't happen. Because God is keeping those things from happening. Again, 
Think about it. If in a fallen, sinful world, it could be completely different than it is right now. God could justly just let everything fall apart. And he would be just in, in doing so. So we should thank God that it doesn't fall apart. That he's holding it together. That it's not nearly as bad as it could be. So rather than being surprised at suffering, we should be surprised at good. We should be surprised at blessing. You see how, you see how we get things skewed, right? Because what our default setting is blessing. Our default setting is God should, should be blessed. Of course He should be blessing. And it's an exception that something should go bad. And really, with sin, being in a fallen world, it really should be the opposite. The default should be everything goes wrong. And then we should be shocked when something goes right. It shows you how good God is, but, but the more God is good, the more we take it, the more we take it for granted. Third, Mankind is dependent on God for provision of daily needs. Jesus says in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends His rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, because God does this, providentially, rather than miraculously, we often fail to see God's hand behind it. I'll say it again. Because God does this providentially rather than miraculously, we fail to see God's hand behind it. See, when I say miraculously, I mean, if God just, you know, reaches down, like if, like if He's protecting you, back to the protection thing. I mean, if He just reaches down and grabs your car and lifts it over some other cars so that you don't hit them, well, okay, God's going to get a bunch of praise on that one, isn't He? Because that's miraculous. But the way God operates in His world is not primarily by miracles. If he, if, he, if he operated primarily by miracles, then miracles wouldn't be a big deal. See, one of the reasons miracles are a big deal is because they don't happen much. So the TV preacher who told you to expect a miracle doesn't know what he's talking about. No, you shouldn't expect a miracle. Because that's not the way it normally goes. The way it normally goes is through providence, God directing His world through secondary means. He's using people, He's using, he's using choices, He's using actions. We'll see that a bit later. And because God's not doing it then directly, miraculously, then we fail to see God's hand behind what happens. So here's, here's an example. There was a, I heard this story years ago. The devout old woman who would make it her habit every day to pray to God for her daily needs. She would open her window and she'd cry out to God. God, provide, provide my food for today. Give us this day our daily bread, you know. Provide my food for today. And this is some smart old boys, you know, heard her outside. And they said, you know what, let's play a trick on, on that old woman. And so they went and bought some food and they brought it to her door and they knocked and then they ran away. And she comes to the door and she sees this food and the first thing she does is she goes back to the window and she starts praising God for providing for her. And those boys start mocking her, and they say, you dumb old woman, God didn't give you that, we did. And she said, the devil may have brought it, but God sent it. The devil may have brought it, but God sent it. You see, she had enough sense to see 
that behind what those boys were doing was God. No matter what they intended, you guys remember the story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers? And at the end of that whole ordeal, they end up reunited with Joseph in Egypt and they can't believe he's risen to prominence and he could have them killed if he wanted to, but he's merciful on them. But he says famously in Genesis 50 and verse 20, Genesis 50 and verse 20, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. God overrules the actions of, of people. And I'm beating on this because we need desperately a proper understanding of the providence of God in his world. God is active in everything. It's just that he's using everything in that activity. And because he doesn't do it directly, we don't credit him for it. In fact, we not only don't credit him for it, we try to look for like, you know, give me a miracle every now and so I know you're out there. And we use phrases like, you know, now that was a God thing. That was a God thing. I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the God thing. And the reason is, is because if you really understand providence, how many God things are there? That would be pretty much everything, wouldn't it? <laughs> so we've got to train our, our, ourselves to think about it. You guys have heard that story about, you know, the, the person who sizes everything up like most people do based on miracle. And so, you know, there's a flood coming and the forecast is that, you know, uh, you're going to get washed away if you don't evacuate. So people start evacuating, getting out of time. The, the rain keeps coming. But this one guy says, no, I believe in God. He's going to take care of me. You know, so the rain keeps coming. And so some guys go down on a boat, and they say, hey, man, it's still coming. Jump in. We got some room. No, God's going to take care of me. You know, it keeps coming. Another boat goes, goes by. You know, he says, no, God's going to take care of me. Now he's up on the top of his roof. You know, he's finally hanging from a tree. It's about all he's got left. It's still rising. Helicopter comes by. Going to throw him a rope. He says, no, God's going to take care of me. Rain keeps coming. The guy drowns. He's standing before the Lord. He says, Lord, I had faith you were going to take care of me. I sent you two boats and a helicopter. <laughs> right? But you see what the guy's thinking, right? The boats aren't from God. The helicopter's not from God. God's got to reach down and do a miracle. Otherwise, it's not God. So we've got to lose that, that kind of thinking. Farmers are often, are often God-fearing people. Not across the board, but often. You know why? Because they know very directly that their living depends on God. They know if the, if, who controls the weather. And they, know who, and they know that. And they have to live by that. Well, I'm not a farmer. You guys aren't farmers. We're not an agrarian, agrarian you know, culture. But we should think that way all the time about everything. All right, so that's mankind. That's humanity in general and our relationship to the all-powerful God. Now, B, the significance of God's omnipotence to the Christian specifically. And first, the Christian is dependent on the power of God for assurance of his salvation. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith, now notice this, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Here's what, here's what Peter is saying. You're going to make it. If you belong to God, if you're a Christian, you're going to make it. But here's why you're, you're going to make it. Because of God's power. God's power is what should give you your security, your assurance that I'm going to make it to the end. I'm going to make it to heaven. Now, why is that? Because God controls all the circumstances. His power controls all the circumstances in which you play out all of the events of your life. God's power controls all the circumstances in which you and I play out the events of our lives. What's that got to do with my, my salvation? Well, here's what it's got to do. God is the one who can keep you then because He controls stuff. He can keep you from things that would cause you to fall. And the Bible actually teaches He does that. Did you know that? Remember in Jesus' model prayer? He gives the model prayer. He says to them, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Do you remember one of the, there are six requests in that prayer, six. One of the six requests is lead us not. Remember? Jesus says, say to God, lead us not into temptation. That's a way of saying, God, keep me from what would harm me spiritually. Well, how's God able to do that? Because God has all power. The reason you're going to make it to heaven is because God is shielding you, this verse says. Shielded by God's power. In Luke chapter 22, Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus says to Peter, he uses his, Jesus, you know, Jesus is the one who gave him the name Peter, right? His name's Simon. And so, but Jesus said, you're going to be, from this point on, you're going to be Peter because you're a rock. So he gave him the name. But his name is Simon, and, and Jesus says in Luke twenty two thirty one, 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. All right, let me just stop there. Satan has asked? Satan has asked for permission to sift Peter as wheat, to just tear him to shreds. Now, you've seen that in the Bible, right? Remember Job? And Satan comes and presents himself before God and says, uh, hey, let me, let me deal with Job. And Job will curse you once he loses all the stuff you give him. So Satan has to get permission from God. And here's Jesus saying, Satan has asked permission, Peter, to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The only thing that keeps Peter, remember Peter denied the Lord. The only thing that kept Peter from denying the Lord completely is God shielding him. And it's the power of God who controls the circumstances that are the arena in which you play out the affairs of your lives, as all of us do, that keeps us from, from falling. Well, you can think about the, the power of God just endlessly. But that just gives you some idea of all the things God does that we don't often think about. Look at the top of page 24. 
a second significance of the omnipotence of God for the Christian. The Christian's dependent on the power of God for the strength to face the circumstances of life. Isaiah 40, verse 29, he gives strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And this is all because of what? What God does. And so God is the one who gives the strength. And I would say there, when we talk about the strength in the circumstances that He allows into your life, and He controls all of them by His power, that He's giving you the strength in three categories. Physically, emotionally, and volitionally. Physically, emotionally, volitionally. Physically, so that you don't faint. So you just have the physical energy to, even if you're just barely getting along and you feel like you're going to collapse, He's the one giving it to you physically, emotionally, so that you don't fall apart psychologically. And then volitionally, that is, volition is choosing the act, your will. And God's giving you the strength to resist the temptations that go with adverse circumstances. God is the one who in His power provides all of that for you. Thirdly, since the Christian is totally dependent on God, he will serve Him with reverence and fear. I mean, since, you know, it's God and He has all power, then we have this fear, that is, this reverence and, and fear for God because we know we don't deserve what He's giving us and we also know He has the power, if He so desired, to remove it. Now, he's promised he won't. I understand that. He's not going to remove it completely. But, but can God remove his protections for a period of time? He did with Job, didn't he? And so, with reverence and fear, we say, Lord, keep your protective hand on me. Because I know if you stop shielding me, I know where I could be in a week, in a month, in a year. Philippians 2 says this, you see it there? Continue to work out your salvation, but notice with this fear and trembling. Why? Here's the reason it says. Because it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Because God is the one who is indispensably at work in you, then always have that fear and that reverence about you. Now, Philippians 2.13, notice it does not say work for your salvation. We're not saved by our works. You guys know that. We'll see it when we get to the doctrine of salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work out your sal salvation. And so you work outward what you have inward is what it's saying. Do outwardly, display outwardly the salvation you have inwardly. All right. So you have the power of God in the Christian life, now the knowledge of God in the Christian life. And again, we'll see mankind in general and then the Christian in particular. First, mankind's relationship to the omniscient God. The omniscience of God renders mankind totally accountable to Him. Accountability means that each person must give an answer for his or her deeds. The fact that our accountability assumes, the fact of our accountability assumes a record of all of our deeds. Therefore, accountability is based on God's comprehensive knowledge of each person. So if we're going to be accountable, somebody's got to be counting. That's what it's saying. There's a comprehensive record. 
And who's got that comprehensive record? God does. Every last thing. And this is humanity in general. So when we did the book of Revelation last year, and you get to the end of the book of Revelation, and the books are opened, and God has everything that everybody has ever, has ever done. Now, if you're in Christ, you're not standing before that judgment. It's called the great white throne judgment. But humanity in general, God's got it, got it all. So this is divine accounting. God's keeping track, and He's keeping track perfectly because He has complete knowledge. So it means a couple of things. Number one, mankind is accountable because God has this complete knowledge of each person's deeds. You see a couple of passages that tell you that. And then secondly, mankind is accountable because God's knowledge will be the basis of this judgment. There you have Revelation 20 and verse 12 that I alluded to. Now there is, you see the, you see the there are two passages there, 2 Corinthians 5 and then Revelation 20. Those are, in the Bible, those are actually two different judgments. 2 Corinthians 5 is what's called the judgment seat of Christ. That's the phrase Paul uses there. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is for Christians. There will be an evaluation of Christians at the end of our time. But it's not for whether I'm going to heaven or hell. That's already been decided on the cross if we belong to Christ. That judgment in Revelation 20 is the great white throne judgment, and that's the one for unbelievers, and they're going to, to hell if they're outside of Christ. So you've got this judgment seat of Christ. And God's omniscience means that He knows everything that, that we've done with the abilities, the gifts that He's given us. And God, now get this, God's knowledge is so pervasive that He can keep track of everything I do, everything you do, and everything we should have done that we failed to do. You ever thought about that? Yikes. It's not just the stuff we do that we shouldn't. It's the stuff that we are supposed to do that we, that we didn't. And God's got all of that, and not only all that, by virtue of what we do, good or bad, or by virtue of what we fail to do, good or bad, God can also see all of the ramifications of that, everything that would have happened had you not done that or had you done it. Every piece. This is why the judgment seat of Christ doesn't occur when you die. The judgment seat of Christ doesn't happen until the end of the age. And I believe the reason that God waits to the end of the age is because that's when all of the ripple effects of everything we did play out. And then we see that. God shows that to us, the judgment seat of Christ. And there'll be all the things we did for Christ will be there, all the good things. There'll also be the things we failed to do. You say, wow, I'm not looking forward to that piece. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. But you know one of the effects that it will have is that God is going to welcome us into His... He welcomes us into His heaven forever, despite the fact that we're reminded one last time how much we don't deserve it. But it's all based upon this comprehensive knowledge of God. 
Now here's the significance of God's omniscience specifically to the Christian. The Christian's understanding of his accountability to the omniscient God serves as a motivation to forsake sinful living. Forsake sinful living. Top of page 25, David says in Psalm 139, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way uh, everlasting. Second, the Christian's understanding of his accountability to the omniscient God serves as a motivation to pursue biblical living. Now, I want you guys to look back at page 24 just for a second, bottom of page 24. Because point number one said that God's omniscience serves as a motivation to forsake sinful living. But then now number two on page 25 says it serves as a motivation to pursue biblical living. Forsake sinful living, pursue biblical living. And here's what I want you to get out of that. There's a difference. That's why we have two separate points for them. See, too many times we think that the Christian life is just avoiding sin. But it's not just, number one, forsaking sinful living. Uh-uh. It's actually pursuing righteousness. No neutrality. Not like this middle ground. And so, biblical counselors have a thing that they use a lot called the replacement principle. And they get it from the Bible. Go figure. Biblical counselors get that from the Bible. Ephesians chapter 4, let him who stole steal no more. Let him who stole steal no more. Now, it, it doesn't stop there because that's forsaking sinful living. Stop stealing. But see, the Bible doesn't just say stop stealing. Let him who stole steal no more. Ephesians 4, I think it's 28. And then it goes on to say, but... Let him work with his own hands so that he will have to give to others who are in need. So as a Christian, it's not I don't, I don't do the bad thing. It's I actually do the good thing. And that's what's meant by when you, when you have a sin problem, when I have a sin problem, you're not done with that sin problem once you just start doing that, stop doing that thing. You're done with it when you start doing the right thing. It's called the replacement principle. Or sometimes I call it positive holiness. Holiness for too many Christians is what you stay away from. It's what you don't do. But holiness scripturally is not first and primarily what you don't do. It's first and primarily what you do. And then the things you refrain from are because of what you're trying to accomplish. You say, yeah, but aren't there a lot of don't do Commands in the Bible, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Yeah, but all the thou shalt nots are all because, all because of the thou shalt. The things you don't do are all because of what you're trying to do. Remember, Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he didn't say, thou shalt not commit adultery, that's the greatest one. Or thou shalt not bear false witness. Or thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Thou shalt. He didn't. Remember what he said? Love the Lord your God. With all of your heart, with all of your mind, and all of your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. See, all of the things you don't do flow from that. 
I'm not going to have any other gods before him if I love him with all my heart, mind, and soul. I'm not going to use his name in vain. Thou shalt not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. I'm not going to if I love him. And then he says, and the second is like it, Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not going to steal from my neighbor if I love them. I'm not going to murder my neighbor if I love them. So we've got to think of the Christian life as what it is we're doing, and then the things we don't do are all because of that. Teenagers really need, you know, young people need to get this. We need to teach our kids this. Because too many kids have grown up in church just thinking it's all the stuff I can't do. No, all the stuff I don't do is because of this great thing I'm doing. Now note, the omniscience of God serves as assurance to the believer that the Bible is always applicable. The Christian's never going to face any circumstance God doesn't know. In fact, he's known all about it from the beginning of the world, before the beginning of the world. Since his instructions for Christian living contained in the Bible are timeless, they're always authoritative and relevant. What we're saying there is the book that we have, that is God's Word, was written by this omniscient God who knows everything. And since he knows October 6th of 2021, when in the 15th century B.C., Moses was writing stuff, when in the 10th century B.C. David was writing things, when hundreds of years before Jesus came, the prophets were writing all these things, when 2,000 years ago Paul and Peter and John were writing all these things, and God, when we get to the doctrine of the Bible, we'll see God's behind every piece of that so that they wrote what He wanted. Since God knows everything, then God put everything we need in the Bible so that it's relevant for us tonight. Contrary to what lots of people think, liberals teach that, you know, they couldn't have foreseen what was going to be happening in the 21st century. Times have changed, so the Bible just can't. It couldn't possibly keep up with the times. No, God can keep up with the times. God knew the times. God knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew exactly what was going to be on CNN tonight. He knows exactly what the headlines in the newspaper are going to be when he wrote the book. Last, the authority of God in the Christian life. Again, applied to humanity in general and then to the Christian in particular. First of all, mankind's relationship to the sovereign God. The sovereignty of God renders mankind totally responsible to Him. Now, if you're still awake, you read that and you go, hey, didn't we have that under the previous point? And we said the omniscience of God renders mankind totally accountable to Him. And now we're saying... The sovereignty of God renders man totally responsible. So one is about accountability, the other one's about responsibility. And a lot of times we use those interchangeably, they're not exactly the same. Accountable means God, because of His knowledge, His omniscience, keeps a record, a comprehensive record. Responsible means that we're responsible to God, means that He's going to evaluate us by that record. It's one thing to have the record. It's another thing to be evaluated by that record. And because God is the one who has full authority, God is going to take the record that His complete knowledge has of everybody, and He's going to evaluate accordingly. So here's an illustration of that. You know, if you're in a college class and you have, you know, a professor, and the professor's got authority to evaluate you and, and assign your grade, right? Well, he might have an assistant, a grad student or something, and the grad student might record the scores 
on your test. So the grad student has the accounting. He knows your score. But he's not the one to whom you're responsible. The one to whom you're responsible is the guy in charge of the class. God actually does both. God does the record keeping, and then God does something with the record. And doing something with the record is what his authority, his sovereignty is about. Lesson two, establish the fact that God has absolute independent authority over all things. God's exercise of that authority is called his sovereignty. There is no doctrine more hated and resisted than that of God's sovereignty, precisely because it makes mankind's responsibility to God unquestionable. Let me just stop there for a second. So here's the way people tend to think about God. They want God to be there as kind of a divine waiter that you call on when you want to order some more stuff. And that's what prayer is for most people, just ordering, just putting in another order. And the divine waiter, God, that's what we want. We want God to do our bidding. And we want Him to be powerful enough to be able to come through, <laughs> to be able to provide what we want. We want a God that is not too much God. And a God who controls everything, and a God that's not accountable to anybody, and a God that holds everybody responsible, that's too much for sinful people. It should be a blessing, but it's fallenness that causes us to chafe against it. Mankind's responsibility means he's obligated to think and act in a specified manner. This obligation cannot be separated from the accountability we talked about under the previous point. It's precisely because a person is required to live a specific way that he's going to be called upon to account for those actions. The sovereignty of God renders mankind responsible because, first, God has authoritatively established the standards of behavior, and second, God designed the circumstances in which the behavior would be carried out. Those two, again, just slowly take a look at those. He has authoritatively said this is the way... It's got to be. This is the way you're to talk, think, and act. He set the standards. He has the authority to do that. He has also designed the circumstances in which you do it. Hmm. All right, so think about that. How many times, you know, do people say, hey, God wouldn't want me to be, God wouldn't want me to, I get this kind of stuff all the time over years in ministry. God wouldn't want me to be alone. Or God wouldn't want me so, He wouldn't want me to be alone, so I'm going to marry this guy who's an unbeliever. Because God wouldn't want me to be alone. Well, hold up a sec. Remember, God established the standards? And God says, if you're His, you can't marry an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you can't. But we make up, well, but God wouldn't want me to. Well, he might, at least for a period of time. He's the one who sets the, he has the right to do it. He tells you what to do. Or God wouldn't want me to be unhappy in this marriage. Can't tell you how many times I've heard that. God wants me out of this marriage. 
No, no, no. God is the one who designed the circumstances in which the behavior is to be carried out. We act like some of that took God by surprise. And none of it is taken by surprise. So, friends, don't use this kind of language. God wouldn't want. Somehow God doesn't know. You know, in the words of those great theologians, the Allman Brothers, some of you old enough to remember the Allman Brothers band? Lord, I was born a rambling man, trying to make a living, doing the best I can. And when it's time for leaving, I hope you'll understand that I was born a rambling man. You see what's going on there? And I've had a lot of hard knocks in my life. I was born, in fact, it starts out this way. It starts out, it says, my father was a gambler down in Georgia. He wound up on the wrong end of a gun. And I was born in the backseat of a Greyhound bus rolling down Highway 41. Lord, I was born a rambling man. See, God, you've got to take into account my circumstances. And God goes, I know your circumstances. I knew your circumstances before I made the world. I knew your circumstances before there was ever a Greyhound bus. I knew everything that was going to go on with you. And I have designed the circumstances in which you are to do what I have told you to do. So we got to stop with the bartering and the bargaining and God wouldn't want and all of that stuff. Mankind is responsible because God alone has established the standards. And, next page, mankind is responsible because God will condemn any who violate them. And humanity is responsible because God has sovereignly planned all of mankind's free choices. Now, it's 13 after. I only got a little bit left, and we only got a little bit to go, so stay with me. But that one, number three, you got to read that. We're responsible because God has sovereignly planned all of our free choices. Wow. So remember what I was saying earlier that if God by His power didn't shield you and keep you from the things that you could end up involved in, who knows where you'd be? Who knows where I'd be? Remember when I was saying that? That's why lead us not into temptation. Well, related to that is this now. Because people indeed make free choices. But those choices are always made in circumstances designed by whom? This is why... The Bible says in the book of Exodus, and we have it listed for you here, that it says, at times it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then other times it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. How do you, how do you got both of those? How does God harden somebody's heart? You know how he does it? By giving them enough rope to hang themselves. He removes the restraints. He lets them make their free choices, and he knows exactly where those free choices are going to go. They're making their own, and he's just no longer shielding them. That's what he did with Pharaoh. You know the maxim, power corrupts? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. God allowed Pharaoh to have absolute power from a human standpoint. Went to his head, he thought he was God. So when we're making our choices, we're always making our choices in a context that was 
put together by God. I was teaching this years ago when I was doing that youth ministry I told you guys about. <laughs> you know, teenagers, nobody like a teenager to um, humble you <laughs> or to tick you off or both. But I remember this one girl, you know, I'm teaching about the sovereignty of God. She's looking at me and she goes, look, God doesn't control the choices I make. I got a chocolate donut, I got a plain donut. I can choose either one I want. That's what she says to me. And I say to her, all right, well, let's talk about your chocolate and plain donut. I say, how many donut, uh, how many donut shot, or, 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 I step first I said, who decided what town you would live in? You or somebody else? And she says, somebody else. Her parents, right? And I said, and how many donut shops are in your town? And she says, two. I says, who decided that, you or somebody else? Somebody else. And when you go to one of those two donut shops, I said, one of those is closer to your house, right? Who decided that, you or somebody else? Somebody else. And when you go into that donut shop that's closer to your house, that other people decided, in that town that other people decided, are there unlimited donuts or just a limited number? And who decided that, you or somebody else? Somebody else. And when you were born, who was it that created your particular personality and your particular likes and dislikes and your taste buds and all that? You or somebody else? You see where we're going, right? You just keep playing that thing out. Somebody else, somebody else, somebody else. So that by the time you come to the point of choice, yes, you're making a choice, but you're making a choice in the context of what a sovereign God has so arranged for His purposes. Now here's quickly the significance of God's sovereignty for Christians. The Christian's understanding that we're responsible to the sovereign God gives us a God-centered purpose in life. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This means that in every situation, large or small, we ask, what would God want me to do? Life has, to use the fancy term, friends, a doxological purpose. Doxa means glory, the glory of God. We call the doxology that we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's praise, give glory to God. God's glory is His character. And so that 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, that is the end. That's the last verse summarizing a whole section that goes from 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, and that's the last verse. Therefore, based on everything that's been said in chapters 8, 9, and 10, and if you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 8, what it's about, it's about should I eat this meat that was previously offered in sacrifice to an idol. And this is the end of that, saying whether you eat, if you decide to eat that meat, or whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all so it displays the character of God. And back in chapter 8, Paul said, whether you eat this, it's just meat. That's what he says, it's just meat. But whether you eat it can be a matter of whether you love your brother or not. And since love's a character quality of God, then when you decide whether you're going to eat or not, make sure that whichever choice you make displays the character of God. So this causes us Christians to live a God-centered life. Secondly, our understanding that God is sovereign gives us peace and confidence. We can serve God without worry 
and anxiety because everything's under his control. We can face life without indecision and frustration because we know what God expects. We're encouraged because we know that every life situation has been planned by God for the purpose of our benefit. Whatever situation we face, top of page 27, we've been placed there by a sovereign God. And that's why Romans 8.28 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. 30 seconds left. More. And if you guys will turn to the next page. Normally we don't do the learning to live at peace. But I want to read this quote from Charles Spurgeon. We'll read that and we'll be done. Spurgeon said this, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on His throne. They will allow Him to be in His workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They'll allow Him to be in His money house to dispense His alms and bestow His bounties. They'll allow Him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends His throne, His creatures then gnash their teeth and we proclaim and enthrone God and His right to do as He wills with His own, to dispose of His creatures as He thinks well, without consulting them in the matter. And then it is that we are hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on His throne is not the God they love, but it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon His throne whom we trust. Amen. Have a great week. See you Sunday. Lord willing.